Welcome to Politics is Everything, our look at ways in which politics in the era of Donald Trump is having an impact beyond the walls of the White House or the hallways of the U.S. Capitol. I'm Caitlin Huey Burns, national political reporter for Real Clear Politics and your host for this podcast. On the show today, we'll examine an industry that has been distinctly affected by Trump era politics, the media. Media outlets like CNN and MSNBC are fake news, fake news. So just as an example of media, take the totally failing New York Times. The relationship between Trump and the media is intense and well-documented, but it is also having perhaps mutual benefits. The deluge of news coming from this new White House has kept reporters plenty busy and has audiences captivated. The New York Times is totally dishonest, totally dishonest. Washington Post been a little bit better lately, but not good. The New York Times and Wall Street Journal, for example, have reported record increases in digital subscribers. Cable news networks have also seen their strongest ratings in the early months of the Trump presidency as a governing novice assumed the most powerful office in the world. There's definitely a rejuvenation that has happened uh, in in many ways, some big, some small, Mm -hmm. in big newsrooms and small newsrooms. I think the president's That's Brian Stelter, media correspondent for CNN and host of the show Reliable Sources. We'll chat with him about the ways in which the Trump campaign and now the Trump presidency have changed the media landscape, how different outlets are responding, and how political news has a hold on the airwaves these days. Politics is everything, as a wise reporter from RCP said to me recently. It seems everything gets framed through Trump uh, in the press. Trump is a uh, beginning of a story. Uh, Trump is a lead. Trump is a conclusion. You know, th- there is something all-consuming, not about politics, but about this one individual. We'll also chat about how long this trend lasts and whether audiences might become exhausted by political news. We'll also chat about the increasing polarization of news. A new Pew study this week finds that in the early days of the Trump administration, nearly 90% of Democrats say that the media plays a watchdog role, while 42% of Republicans say the same. That's the biggest difference in party views of the media's role in three decades. We also have Hadass Gold, media reporter for Politico, who recently assessed the relationship between White House reporters and Donald Trump in a new piece called Trump's Fake War on the Fake News. Gold says it's important to consider the theatrics involved. If you go beneath that surface and beneath that rhetoric, it it really is almost, if not a normal relationship, it's one that they're almost trying to keep going with, that they themselves are trying to maintain relationships with the media. And so what we wanted to do was point out that uh, he always calls the media, or the president tends to call a lot of the media fake news, but it's really a fake war that he, he and part of his staff are waging because they're talking to all of the media all the time. They're giving decent access, uh, actually. They're holding briefings every day. Uh, President Trump invites reporters from the Sailing New York Times and the Washington Post and NBC and all these people into the Oval Office for meetings. Uh, and as we saw, this is how we ended the piece, as we saw with the health care bill when that didn't go through, who were the first people he called? It wasn't Breitbart. It wasn't even Fox News. It was the New York Times and the Washington Post. Uh, and so I think that just goes to show to people that he's he's waging this publicity war. But really, and if you go into his history, you see this is reporters and journalists and what they think and how they 
and how they deal with him is very important to him. And so if he was really going to wage a true war on the mainstream media, he would you know, block more reporters from attending the briefings. He just, he just wouldn't call them on the phone. You know, it, it goes to show you kind of how contrived in a way sometimes this war is just by who he calls and who he talks to. But beyond the theater, this fake war can have a real impact. I'm not saying that there should be a charming relationship, that they should be holding hands and singing Kumbaya every day in the briefing room. But the importance, though, of at least the trust that, like, a White House correspondent can trust what an administration official is telling them is sort of important because there's going to be a time when the administration needs the media to believe them and to report what they're saying without uh, report just report what they're saying and, and to the American public because it'll be in public safety interest, perhaps. Uh, and we've already seen this sort of backfire, the fake news campaign against the media sort of backfire with the Russia Syria stuff going on because at one point uh, the Americans were pointing out I think Jim Rutenberg had this in one of his columns and he was reporting from Moscow and he was writing that uh, at one point the American officials were using media reports to back up some of their assertions to the Russians about Syria and chemical attacks and things like that and the Russians were saying, well, fake news. And so they were just throwing it back at them, saying, well, this is just fake news. So if the American government that is continuously calling fake news then tries to use said news to make their point, especially to foreign governments or to the American public at large, it's, it's hypocritical. And that's going to cause them problems. The president's dismissal of news outlets could be influential when it comes to trust. I definitely think when you have a president like Donald Trump, who makes very clear his his favored and not favored outlets, um, that exacerbates it. If Barack Obama, which Barack Obama sort of would signal it, obviously, in the outlets that he would speak to, in um, the things that he would sometimes say, what he would refer to, but he wasn't as explicit as Donald Trump is, who would literally will say, you know, don't trust this failing piece of garbage, BuzzFeed, which I think is almost a direct quote. And versus, you know, I love Fox and Friends. They're the best morning show in the world. They're honest, that type of thing. He's giving direct endorsements. If if Barack Obama went out and said, hey, guys, like, and he would sometimes mention like Fox News and things like that. But if he would say, hey, guys, I read Huffington Post every day. I love them. Uh, that would be a direct endorsement. And you would see people trusting if they were a supporter of his, trusting that outlet more. As a result, you probably have uh, Donald Trump supporters who say, well, the president, who I trust completely, who I voted for, says that BuzzFeed is a sailing piece of garbage. So why should I trust anything that they report? I'm going to trust what the president trusts and what the president reads, because that's where I can get to get like an honest assessment of what's happening. Gold also says that while the relationship between the media and the president it covers has always been an issue of contention and intrigue, this is certainly a new era, mostly because this president is obsessed with the news. I mean, it, it honestly, his, his media obsession plays into every aspect of his life and of his presidency. I have heard about his meetings that he is having with high-level people, and this was a few months ago, and let's say just Scarborough would call on a cell phone, and he would stop the meeting and take the phone call and put Joe Scarborough on speakerphone and be like, hey, Joe, I'm sitting with XYZ. Uh, and he is constantly watching. It's almost, I've heard from people now before they go on television or before they maybe write something, knowing that the president is likely going to watch and potentially could react. And it's become almost 
I don't know if I want to call it a game, but they're just like, oh, maybe I'll get a tweet or something from the president because I went on Fox today or I wrote this piece. Maybe maybe we'll get a reaction or something like that. Uh, and we've, we've just absolutely never seen that before because most presidents, they know what's happening. They're aware. They get, you know, clips and printouts and things, but they're not consuming it and reacting in, in real time Look, it's it's just something we've never seen before. And the fact that he can be influenced, the fact that he can actually start taking action with things that he sees in the media puts the media in a much more powerful position, especially outlets like Fox News, uh, than we've ever seen in the past. And so far, the news media has kept up. It's the most interesting story we have at hand right now. I mean, what would the what can you imagine? Like, what cable news would cover that would be sort of as exciting as, as if something else? I mean, we have countdown clocks to the 100 days. We have you know palace intrigue. We have you know an upending of traditional ways that uh, Washington has approached things. We have sparking trade wars with a Canadian with the Canada and a, and a good-looking Canadian prime minister. I mean, it's, it's, it's a goldmine for our news. I wondered, though, how long this will last. Will news consumers grow fatigued or disinterested or move on to something else? I asked the question to Brian Stelter of CNN. Some of this surge of interest and, and energy around our profession, it may, it may some of it be temporary, we may see a fall off somewhat in subscriptions or in viewership uh, as time goes on. I've seen a little bit of softening in ratings for some news programs uh, in April, for example, uh, versus January. Mm -hmm. um, but there are also, I think, long-term effects or long-term impacts. We're hearing anecdotally about students choosing to go into the journalism profession, study what we do, you know, we can see subscription growth at some newspapers that will be uh, long-term. Mm -hmm. If you sign up for the Washington Post and the New York Times, you're likely to continue to pay for a long time, according to the research. So if you signed up partly out of interest or concern or curiosity about Trump, you're probably going to stay with that outlet for a long time. And that'll mm -hmm. be a gain that'll go beyond 2017. Mm -hmm. Some of the effects might be temporary, though. I, I do think there's... Um, uh, there was a spike and a surge of interest, you know, around the election, around the inauguration, that is subsiding a little bit in in ratings and page view data. Um, so probably some some short term effects, some long term effects, right? Mm, interesting. What about the way in which people are consuming news? Is that is that going to kind of continue on the trajectory that it is? In other words that people are, are, you know, viewing videos online, yeah. there's this, um, there's a premium on, you know, clips that can be shared and that go viral and that sort of thing. Um, that's not, you know, that ha journalism isn't changing in that way because of Trump, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's been mm -hmm. on this trajectory. Um, but if people are more engaged, um, for now at least, does that at least keep this kind of going? Yeah. This is what we have to reckon with. The, the, the changes to people's media consumption habits is nothing short of revolutionary. I, I, I think I have a hard time even getting my head around it, and I'm supposed to be doing this every day for a living. Yeah. You know, it's only been 10 years since we were all given these smartphones. You know, only 10 years since the iPhone was invented. Uh, only a little bit more than that since Facebook was invented. And these technologies have become now a part of all of our daily lives, our routines and rhythms. Uh, in ways that I think we're all collectively just now reckoning with. Look, look at Facebook and its belated attempts to address 
some of the BS and, and, and hoaxes that are in your newsfeed. Look at Google and its efforts to downplay websites that lie to you and uh, uh, support websites that tell you the truth. Mm. We're seeing these companies react to these changes. We're seeing consumers try to figure out what the heck to believe and what the mm -hmm. heck to do with these technologies. It's like we've been given these tools, but we're trying to figure out how to use them, mm. how to not to be abused by them. Mm. Yes. Uh, and I, I think we saw that during the election. We see that now with people yeah. feeling like they're overwhelmed by news sources and overwhelmed by things that look like news or smell like news but aren't. Mm -hmm. um, this is not something that individuals can have much impact over. This is a this is a societal challenge. Well, someone that has had an influence on this is the president, right? The fact that he continues to call the media fake news. Mm -hmm. What impact does that have on the media? And then what impact does that have on those who consume the media? Everybody trusts some media. Right? There are studies that show widespread distrust of the quote-unquote media, but everybody trusts some media. Mm -hmm. People just choose to trust different kinds of media. And the president, the president is feeding into the uh, distrust of media that already exists. The president's making a bad thing worse. There is already distrust of media. There's already rampant polarization. Uh, there's already uh, problems uh, in the relationship between the press and the public we cover. He is making those things worse. Uh, by poisoning people with this fake news rhetoric. Now, obviously, we all know uh, New York Times and CNN are not fake news, but by discussing this, we're actually playing on his field. He's setting the terms or setting the rules of the game. I noticed that the White House Correspondents Center, a lot of journalists essentially on defense, mm. saying we're not enemies of the people, we're not fake news, uh, is mm. using his language and playing by the rules of the game that he is setting out. Mm. I don't mean to suggest there's an alternative here, and I don't think we can ignore his insults. Uh, I think we have to recognize the impact of his attacks rather than pretend like they're not happening. He is telling his fans not just to distrust the media, but to hate the media. He, he's saying, you can't trust them. They're not like you. They're not supporting you. They're actually opposed to you. They're against you. He's saying journalists in this country are the enemy. And he's saying that in different ways on a daily basis. Uh, even, of course, while talking with journalists mm -hmm. and taking advantage of, of television airtime. Right. Uh, that's a poison that is slowly working its way through the bloodstream. And I'm not claiming he's the first person to, to use this poison, but he certainly has a very pure, powerful form of it that he's injecting into the bloodstream of the country. And the impacts of that, as with any disease, uh, will be measured over time. We can't know yet the impact of, of this fake media lie that he continues to, to propagate. Um, but I do think we, we should recognize the impact of it uh, among his most loyal supporters, that they're being told every day uh, not to trust real news outlets. Um, what journalists can do about it, you know, the complicated question, right? That, yes, we have to defend our profession uh, without maybe sounding like we're <laughs> whining yeah. um, and uh, uh, figure out how to bridge some of the divides that he's worsening. I, yeah. I think of this like the Grand Canyon. Um, the Colorado River is in the bottom of the canyon, and every day it's further eroding the walls of the canyon. That's what Trump's words are doing. They, they are like that water stream that are just further deepening the divide between the two sides. Um, 
is it possible to build bridges over that canyon? Is it possible to get across that river? Uh, you know, without torturing the, the, the analogy, I, I, that's what I wonder about a lot is, what do you do to reach folks on the other side who have been told every day that we're not telling the truth? Um, and uh, that's, again, that's, like a, that's a challenge for all these newsrooms. But it's interesting, too, because um, we are in a, a cycle where, or, or, or a time when people are, 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 because you're not necessarily opening up a newspaper and you're not exposed mm -hmm. to different stories that you might not have otherwise seen. I think people are consuming more, but still kind of picking the news that they want to read and are interested in. So bridging that divide, I'm also kind of interested along those lines of what you make of these uh, media bubbles. Um, mm -hmm. They've been talked about a lot. You've talked about this. Other people have talked about this, especially after the election. What are, are people in the media in their own bubbles? I mean, what do you make of that kind of construct? Mm. What we think of as the media has been atomized. It's been blown up into thousands of little pieces and then new thousands of little pieces beyond that. The result is, in our own news feeds or in our media diets, we're not even sure what outlets we're reading or which writers and read reporters we're, we're interacting with. I read a headline on a site. I may read a few paragraphs from the story without even knowing the credibility of the site. And I think we should recognize a lot of folks uh, who want to be informed citizens don't know how to do that right now. They don't know where to go and what to rely on for accurate information. There's this spectrum of news, and the current attention around fake news, I think, has made this spectrum more clear, right? On one end of the spectrum is uh, a hoax uh, site, a made-up site full of truly fake stories, what we would call fake news in the original definition of the term. And then on the other end of the spectrum are really high-quality sites that try really hard to get it right. And I would put the New York Times and Real Clear Politics and CNN over there. Others might disagree, but I would put them over at the attempting to do it really well high end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. In between are all these other things that um, look like news and smell like news and might be kind of news-like substances. There's such a variation in quality out there. And because it all looks the same on the Internet, uh, it's a struggle for people to know what, what is reliable and what is not. Um, to me, that's just a, a problem that is getting worse and worse, and I wish there was more innovation around solving that problem. Kind of along those lines, too. Um, people often conflate editorial boards with reporters. They often conflate, uh, conflate primetime newscasts uh, with straight newscasts. Yeah. So people looking to, and you've talked about this before too, a Sean Hannity as a reporter is not accurate. Looking at Rachel Maddow yeah. as a reporter is not accurate. Um, because their their presentation is such that they, they don't um, present themselves as journalists, but that's really, I think, often conflated. Do you think that's more so than, than before? Um, that people are, are, are going to those and thinking that that's straight journalism? I think a lot of people who watch Hannity's show know what he is, which is a great broadcaster, an entertainer, a conservative pro-Trump voice. But, but then there are others who do conflate uh, what Hannity does with what Martha McCallum or Brett Baer does at Fox. Um, that's partly because it looks and sounds the same. The graphics are similar, the set is similar, the colors and the sounds. The physical production of these programs is similar, whether it's news or opinion. Same, of course, in print. Columns and news articles look pretty similar. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, reporters of the Times or the Post might know the difference, but readers might not. And I'm glad that there's more awareness of that problem. I see a lot of folks aware of that problem, but fewer folks trying to fix that problem. Mm. To your point about media bubbles, I think we definitely saw an Acela corridor bias in this election, uh, especially in the primaries, this bent toward conventional wisdom in New York and Washington and the places in between. I see a lot of journalists, though, trying to fight against that, trying uh, not to be a part of that problem, rather trying to be part of the solution. And there's a lot of awareness of that of that issue. Um, I think a lot of folks outside D.C. and New York are in bubbles also. Mm-hmm. This is, um, I think it was five years ago that the filter bubble came out. This was a book about how uh, on Facebook and uh, other social networks, uh, these sites are really trying to show you what you want. And as a result, really um, uh, filtering the world for you, putting you into a bubble. I think the book now should be called Filter Prisons. You know, this is a more severe problem than it was five or ten years ago. People are locked in these uh, cells of their own making Mm. where they uh, are only consuming what they agree with. Um, And I think that goes for some journalists also. Mm. That as we do our jobs, we have to be making sure we're um, getting out of of those, you know, self-imposed chambers. Do you think... Because people are so engaged and because the news is all about politics lately, have you seen instances where um, cable, for example, or news outlets have been focused so much on politics that they've been ignoring other stories? Or is it that just that politics is the biggest story right now? Politics is everything, as a wise reporter <laughs> from RCP said to me recently. It is so... True that we're because we're in the middle of this identity crisis as a country, and this identity crisis is being fought through the political uh, sphere. Um, isn't that what the election was really—an identity crisis? And isn't mm-hmm. the relitigation of the election all part of this identity crisis? Mm-hmm. And isn't the president's "us versus them" rhetoric all about that? Mm-hmm. Um, it ultimately all comes back to politics, whether it's about ESPN's programming or about a new show on Hulu or whether it's about uh, a football star's uh, comments off the field. It all relates back to that identity crisis or battle about the soul of the country. So uh, to answer your question, I do think there are big stories being missed you know, on television and online because of this focus on uh, not just politics, but specifically Trump and Trump world and Trumpism. Uh, it seems everything gets framed through Trump uh, in the press. And I'm as guilty of that as anybody else. If I'm writing the lead to a segment, uh, I'm going to work Trump in in some way, even if I'm going to then turn to something else a couple minutes later. Trump is the frame, he is the prism, he is the starting point for so many stories, even stories that are only tangentially related to his White House or his policies. Trump is a uh, beginning of a story. Uh, Trump is a lead. Trump is a conclusion. You know, th- there is something all-consuming, not about politics, but about this one individual, because everyone has a reaction, everyone has an opinion, everyone has a feeling. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if we've ever had a figure quite like that in our lifetimes. 
Yeah, and Maybe in history, but not in our lifetime. Uh, we have a Republican president for the first time in eight years, um, and a Republican House, Republican Senate. What has been the effect, do you think, that Trump has had on conservative media? Because that's been changing a lot, too. I see two kinds of conservative media right now. Explicitly pro-Trump, sometimes entertainment media, mm. and then a more intellectual, oftentimes anti-Trump or Trump-skeptical conservative media. These are writers for National Review, Weekly Standard, and other outlets that are uh, trying to be the, uh, the, the, um, uh, the noble resistance from the right. So far, I've seen the conservative entertainment complex winning. And what I mean by that is uh, radio hosts, uh, television stars, people that are essentially pro-Trump, who put on an entertaining show, who share Trump's reality show values, who are defending the president, attacking the resistance, uh, attacking what they say is the liberal biased media in every single breath. Mm -hmm. These entertainers are really defined in two ways. Number one, they're with the president. Number two, they're against what they call the press, the, mm -hmm. the media. Of course, they are part of the media, but mm -hmm. they don't view it that way. It seems to me those folks are uh, um, winning, so to speak, right now. Winning, meaning getting the most oxygen and airtime and attention. Okay. Uh, Fox and Friends, being the president's favorite morning show, is the best example of this. That's a conservative entertainment show with some news in mm -hmm. it as well. It's very fun to watch. Uh, it's a um, you know, wild, uh, rollicking talk show. And the theme of the talk show is... The president's trying to do his best to help you, the viewer, and everybody else is out to get him. Mm -hmm. And it's a, you know, it's a conservative entertainment show. And I don't mean that to de degrade it. I'm just trying mm -hmm. to describe what it does. Mm -hmm. Those shows seem to be ascendant right now. Uh, they certainly have the president's ear, and they're affecting uh, what's happening in Washington. What's maybe having less of an effect is a more intellectual, scholarly, conservative media complex. Mm -hmm. uh, magazines and websites that are concerned about some of the president's uh, efforts and concerned about what they see as incompetence in mm -hmm. the White House. There's not much overlap between the conservative entertainers, you know, these radio hosting people, and then and then these intellectuals who are writing columns trying to point out uh, problems. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It's like kind of a Venn diagram with nothing in between. What do you think is one, one or two things that the media should be doing a better job at in covering this president? I think we're seeing reams and reams and reams of impressive reporting every day about this administration. What I, as a consumer, would like is some more ways to get my arms around it all, mm. to know what the heck all happened today. Mm -hmm. If you scroll through Twitter, and let's remember most Americans don't, mm -hmm. but if you scroll through Twitter, right. you get the sense that there were a hundred really wild developments out of the White House on a daily basis, and strange appointments in federal agencies, and Weird announcements from here or there, funny comments from the White House podium, confusing statements from the president's mouth, curious tweets that probably aren't true. It's really hard to get that all into an hour of news, and it's really hard to get that all into a story mm -hmm. or a front page. We, may, we, might, we might need more innovation, more creating of new kinds of products, new ways to tell these stories on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And we definitely need some reporters to zoom out and tell us that big picture story of mm -hmm. what it all means on a daily or weekly or monthly basis. 
and again, I put myself as a, a part of the, the problem here. I, I write, like everybody else, incremental stories about what's going on. And I'm always pushing myself to try to zoom out more often. When I zoom out, I see a story of dishonesty. And it's hard sometimes to take the time to connect all those dots, but there's a lot of dots to connect about uh, fibs and flubs and misstatements and tall tales and outright lies. And when you add up all those misstatements and, and mistakes, the story is not that the mistakes happen. The story is why they keep happening and what the consequences are of dishonesty mm-hmm. from, from the administration. Uh, so that's, that's an example of something that I think, you know, we could all collectively be doing a better job of, of covering. Mm-hmm. What is the effect of all of this dishonesty and confusion? And will it change in the next hundred days? A special thank you to Brian Stelter and Hadass Gold for joining us. And thank you for listening to Politics Is Everything. I'm your host, Caitlin Huey Burns, and I welcome your feedback and subject ideas. Email me at chueyburns at realclearpolitics.com. Hope you'll tune in again next week.